Welcome to Master Mentors, a series where Brad Sugar sits down and interviews leading authors, business owners, influential decision makers, public speakers, and anyone who's making a major difference in the world today. People we can learn from together. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play to get more of these great learnings. And welcome to our uh, next mentor. It's going to give us some of the mastery results that we're after. Our master mentor, Keith Cunningham. Keith, uh, great to have you on from Texas today. Thank you, Brad. Glad to be here. Now, buddy, we first met back in 1993, and since then we've both taught a lot of people and learned a lot of things along the way. And, you know, books have come out and all sorts of different things. What, what do you think's been sort of one of the keys to your success over that time and pre that and the whole thing? Because I've watched you do some amazing stuff in that time. Well, yeah, some of the amazing things you've seen have been uh, spectacular falls uh, in addition to a few of the upsides. I, I think there's any number of things that, that account for either my success or your success, Brad, or or anybody else that we know. I think one of the most critical things in my own life has been you know, always being able to surround myself with, with people who you know, can either can either advise me or counsel me or coach me or 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 tell me the truth. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems I've seen over the years uh, with most people is that yeah, they get to a certain point in their life or a certain point in their career or a certain point in their relationships, and suddenly, yeah, they, they the people the people around them have have either, are either sucking up to them or telling them what they want to hear or not telling them the real facts. You know, I, I, I own a number of businesses and I rely on the people around me to to give me the news. Give me the good news, give me the bad news. Uh, but don't let me read about the news. Um, you know, somebody, somebody needs to be proactive. I, I, one, of my, one of my favorite sayings is, the higher you go, or the higher you want to go, the, the greater the requirement that somebody tell you the truth. Uh, somebody be assigned the responsibility of telling you the truth. And I think that's, you know, I, I, I've been fortunate in that regard, and I've also been proactive. I think another critical uh, characteristic of people who have, who have done well is, and, and been able to sustain doing well. I mean, to me, there's a difference between doing well and, and, and sustaining that success is, is having, having the ability to, to recognize what the mistakes were and then learn from them. Um, and and I, Lord knows I've had some spectacular mistakes. Um, and, and making sure that there's, there's an opportunity for me to get the log of lessons learned is kind of the way I phrase that. Um, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, a, I don't have problems with making mistakes. I just don't want to make the same one multiple times. And, and most people that I know are in a cycle of making variations on the theme mistakes over and over again. And, and never really learning the lesson. I, I learned this really from the Navy SEALs. Uh, the, 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 every time a Navy SEAL goes out on an assignment, which is the Navy SEALs for people who are outside of the United States that are listening to this, uh, is kind of the elite or one of the elite special units in the United States Armed Forces. And the Navy SEALs, every time they go on a mission, whether it's a training mission or, or a regular mission, before they go on the mission, they read, uh, they literally have a book called The Log of Lessons Learned. And they read that, and when they return from the mission, they add to that. What did we learn? 
And and so to me, you know, obviously there's lots of things that I think have, have accounted for, you know, some of the success that I've had. But those are are certainly you know two big ones. I think a third one and is is a willingness to to live with some uncertainty. I, you know, I think in our in our lives, you know, people who have succeeded uh, and succeeded very very sustainably and and spectacularly, those people. Have learned to tolerate some uncertainty, and I, and I, over and over again, I see people who I work with, and I know you've seen it with people that you've worked with, you know, who have a huge need for for certainty before they take the first step, and and usually those are people who are striving for perfection, and and I think striving for perfection is a, is a lost cause. I, I think what what's re, what's required of me and and the people that I work with is let's let's not let perfect get in the way of possible. You know, yeah. what's possible as opposed to what's perfect. Mm, mm. I know that I always work with my team on as long as we can achieve excellence, that's as much as we can hope for. You know, but that all the old theory of a you know a, a, a good plan executed today is far better than a perfect plan never executed. So I agree. I agree. Mm. You'll learn along the way. Interestingly, you know, to me, excellence is is kind of eliminating exceptions. Mm. Uh, you know, when when I when I look at probably the biggest competitive advantage that that I have or that that I, I I think anybody could have would be an ability to execute consistently. You know, of all the in our businesses, man, oh man, if I could just get everybody to do it. The right way every single time. I, yeah, you know, I, I would be way down the road. Uh, and and so to me, eliminating exceptions and 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 thinking in terms of how do we more consistently execute what we're doing. That that is that's huge. Mm, mm. I think it's I think it's a, an amazing part of how um, businesses grow. That the plan has got to be developed, and then we got to execute. And, I look at a lot of these books that talk about execution, Keith, and it's something that you've you've focused on a lot in the times of your teaching, but execution almost always falls down because there wasn't enough time put into the plan or there wasn't real time put into the plan. And I, I've said it for many, many years. I love the old Japanese theory of, you know, slow trigger, fast bullet. Um, yeah. Entrepreneurs have to, I, I guess, balance that up. How do you balance the two, spending all that time planning versus taking action? What, what's your theories on balancing that? Boy, you, you, you've gone right to the, to the heart of the subject. Uh, you know, most people have a goal. They have an outcome they'd like to have. And, and being entrepreneurs, the most entrepreneurs and business owners have a very fast trigger. They, they want to pull the trigger and get something done. I mean, something done is better than nothing done. Going back to the old theory, you know, of, of a, a good plan executed today is better than no plan per, ever executed. And 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 so most people want to pull the trigger. But but there's you're right. There is a balancing that that has to happen. I think I think to me the 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 reason that most businesses you know, either don't get funded, uh, which I happen to know a lot about capital raising. Uh, the reason mo- most businesses don't get funded or they struggle getting traction is because they don't have a clear, sustainable path to profitability. 
I mean, to me, that's all a business plan is. A business plan is a growth plan. How are we going to get from point A to point B safely? And, and, and what are the detours and the roadblocks and the red lights and the, the floods and the earthquakes that are likely to arise between point A and point B? But, but what, what I think business owners need to be thinking about when they're thinking about the plan is what has to happen to get from point A to point B? What's the clear, sustainable path? And each one of those words is critical. If you don't have a clear, sustainable path, you wind up being a, a, a wandering uh, nuisance or a wandering generality. And, and there's a lot of people who <laughs> fall into that kind of category. It's, it's yeah. very sad. I, 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 think, I think there is, typically, there, there is a lack of planning. And I agree with you and the Japanese that a... You know, a slow plan and a fast bullet is better than, than anything else. There's nothing that can substitute for having thought through the issues before you pull the trigger. Uh, this is probably not going to be a very popular example, and it'll probably get edited out, edited out of this recording, but but my boys uh, and I are, are hunters, and, and we eat what we kill. But, but, you know, when the boys were little, I mean, they were very fast on the trigger. And, and the problem is that, that the rule was once you pulled the trigger, you had to clean what you shot. And, and pulling the trigger is always a lot of fun. Cleaning up the mess is, is literally no fun. There's yeah. nobody who enjoys that process. And so that's, most business owners never make forward progress because they're constantly going back cleaning up the messes from the prior bullet. So slowing it down, you know, to me, speed is your, is your enemy a lot of times in business. And it's, it's a, oh. a favorite example of mine that speed kills. The faster you try to do anything, the harder it is. You know, whether it's lose weight or get rich or create a spectacular relationship, speed is your enemy when it comes to, you know, particularly wealth um, and because it doesn't allow for the, the, the eighth miracle, uh, which, according to Warren Buffett, which is, you know, compounding. Speed is the enemy of compounding, and too many people attempt to go fast when they don't have the two requirements that are required in order to go fast. And those mm. two require if you want to go fast, you got to have two things. You got to have a great cockpit. You got to have all the dials sitting in front of you just like an F16. And an F16, you got to have a massive number of dials because one little mistake in an F16 and you're dead. Uh, the other thing you got to have if you want to go fast is you got to have massive amounts of training. You got to have massive amounts of experience in order to go fast. So again, take a look at an F-16 pilot. Not only does the pilot have a tremendous number of dials in the cockpit, and they know exactly what all those dials mean, what they do, and how to pull the levers in order to change the dials, but they also have a tremendous amount of training. Now compare that to somebody who's who's on a tricycle. A tricycle doesn't go fast, and you don't. You, there's no cockpit, and and there's no experience that's required, no training that's required in order to ride a tricycle. But again, you're not going to go very fast. So the mistake that's made is people attempt to go fast, and they don't have the dials in the cockpit, and they don't have the experience, and then they wonder why. There's ambulances and, and, and wreckage crews that are out there cleaning up their mess, and it's because 
they attempted to do something that literally is impossible. You can't go fast without the dials and without the training. Yeah, that's some great analogies, great analogies. Now, buddy, the main reason I want to chat to you today is about finances in business and money and those sorts of things. Let's, let's, raising capital, one, you've, you've touched on that subject so far. One of the fundamentals I always talk about with people with raising capital is the business plan is the business plan, but I'm a horse guy. I love racehorses, and I don't care how good the horse is. If I got a bad jockey, I'm not going to win. Talk to me about your theories about having great people running the business and stuff. I, I think I think that it is the single most important part of of raising capital or building a successful, sustainable business. There is nothing more important than the jockey or the management. I think the people that are raising money, there's, well, think about it. The people that are raising money have a hard time raising money because they don't think like investors think. And so if you put yourself into the shoes of an investor and begin thinking about how would I think if I had $100 million and somebody came to me for a $5 million investment? What, how would I go about that process? And to me, if you're a, an entrepreneur or a business owner and you're, you're looking to raise capital, I'm going to give you four uh, hot buttons. These are investor hot buttons that if you will, if you'll simply address these four issues with the investor, I'm not saying your deal will get done, but I am saying that your deal moves to the top of the stack. And the four hot buttons, number one on that list is exactly this topic, which is management. If you don't have somebody who's been there, done that, running the business, somebody who's driven the bus before, hopefully in this industry, somebody who who knows what they're doing, they know where the where the side swipes could come from, they know where the bullets and the arrows and the potholes, all that stuff, they know where that stuff is, and they, they hopefully have a track record of success. And going to your analogy of horse racing is a terrific analogy. You know, nobody wants to nobody wants to bet on a on a jockey where this is their first race. Of course, you don't want to bet on a horse where it's the first race either, but in my world, I call the horse, and the horse of the deal is management. That That is everything. Uh, because if, if you don't have somebody who knows what they're doing at the helm of the company, you have a problem. And herein lies the issue. Most entrepreneurs want to be that person. and And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that, but if you look at who's driving, uh, take a look at who's driving the race cars at the Indy 500. I'll guarantee you it's not the engineers who dream the thing up. Take a look at who's the astronauts in the space shuttle. I'll guarantee you it's not the, the pointy heads with you know four-inch thick glasses who are computer geeks in Houston. The, 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 the computer geeks are designing this stuff and what it takes to design and envision this stuff is entirely different skill set than the skill set of running the thing, of flying it. And and again, I'm not I'm not saying you can't do it because we can all point to the obvious examples of you know Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and Michael Dell and 
those guys who all started the business and are still running the business. But but the exception is not the rule. And yeah. you know, if if I said to you, look, if you put a loaded gun to your temple and pull the trigger, you're going to die. If what you said to me is, well, wait a minute, Keith, I read about in the in the American Medical Association Journal about a guy who put a loaded gun to his temple, pulled the trigger, and he didn't die. What you're telling me is there's one exception out of a million people that that's happened to. And and so the exception doesn't validate the rule. Uh, you have to yeah. say, wait a minute, what, what's likely here? And it, it, what we're looking to do, I think, as business owners is figure out how to beat the odds. You yeah. know, when you, when you start a business, the odds are stacked against you. For crying out loud, 50% of them are going to are going to be dead in two years. 80% are going to be dead in five years. 96% of all businesses that get started are dead. They're gone within 10 years. So the odds are stacked against you from the get-go. The key is, how do you you rejigger the odds in your favor? And one of the most important things you can do to rejigger the odds is is to figure out who's who's going to actually be at the helm of the thing, who's the management uh, to to help you drive the the bus the direction you want. So that's number one. Can I give you the other other three real quick? Well, I I think the people listening to this recording would kill me if I didn't let you go on to the other three. <laughs> I think the second one is the second most important thing. If you want to if you want to elevate your business plan and give it the best shot that you possibly can at getting funded and becoming successful, is having pent up demand. In other words, it's beyond proof of concept. It's it's there's people clamoring for what you got. The biggest one of the biggest reasons businesses fail is not because it's a lousy idea. It's because and I've seen lots of lousy ideas make a gob of money. The reason businesses tend to fail is because there's no traction. And so if you can show an investor that there's traction, you got orders, you got pent up demand that if you build it they will come. That, that's the whole key right there. Too many entrepreneurs have seen, you know, Field of Dreams and Kevin Costner and, you know, if you build it, they will come. No, they won't. That's stupid. That's Hollywood. If you build it, they won't come unless they know about it, unless they see a value proposition that attracts them, unless they see a marketing and sales and, and an execution. And the reality is getting people to come once is easy. The tough one is the 14th time they come. Get them, getting somebody there 14 times, getting the repeat business, getting somebody to keep coming back, turning a customer into an addict. That's what we're all trying to do, and that's what drives sustainable businesses. But but going back to this pin-up demand, what, if you can show that you have customers that if you build it, people are clamoring for this thing, then all of a sudden your deal rise to the, rises to the top of the of the stack. Number three uh, on the list of, of how you how you get your deal so that it actually gets a, a good hearing from a, a a potential money source is is making sure that there if you can that there's a barrier to entry. In other words, what's going to keep somebody else from seeing your idea and knocking your idea off? And and you can't always do this. But but the idea behind barrier to entry is what is it about your deal that isn't a me too to somebody else's deal? 
And what is it about your deal that's going to keep somebody else from me tooing you? Um, the, the idea is, and, and there's a lot of ways to do that. I mean, it's not just technology. Because when I talk about this, people say, oh, well, my deal isn't a technology deal. That's okay. There, there's lots of barriers to entry. You know, in, in my teaching world, I, I tell people all the time, you can take what I, what I teach you and you can teach it to other people. I'm, I'm not that concerned about it. And the reason is because you're not me. So the barrier to entry for, for people taking what I got and doing something with it, which they could, is, is they're not me. They don't have my track record. They don't have my experience. They're not bringing to the table the gray hair and the scars that I have that gives it the nuances that somebody who's going to be a, a trained trainer that takes my material, that, that, that person isn't going to have what I have. Mm. Uh, it, it, it could be a brand. Like right now, Brad, one of the most intriguing parts of your business is the brand that you've built up. Now, you know, your brand wasn't there 15 years ago when you started this, but a barrier to entry for somebody coming in and, and competing with you would be that you guys are the the largest and most successful coaching franchise in, in, in the world. And, and that's a very serious barrier to entry to somebody who decided to come in and play in your backyard. You know, you have 14 books or some... You know, some ungodly number of books and training materials, and you got track record, and you got experience, and you got testimonials. All of that is a barrier to entry. So you're looking for, but but you built that. I mean, what we're all looking for is what is the competitive advantage that is sustainable. That and and it, you don't you, you don't necessarily have one at the beginning, but you're looking to develop that very quickly. And then number four, finally, is a is a risk reward relationship. Uh, you, you have to make sure that the amount of risk in your deal is being fairly compensated by the reward that you're offering to the investor. And I think most entrepreneurs severely underestimate the amount of risk that is embedded in their in their deal. They they tend to be glassy eyed, they tend to gloss over the, the, the risks that are there. They tend to be you know be you know, all I gotta do is 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 build this thing, raise a little money and it's a you know a couple of weeks and I'll be on the cover of Forbes magazine. And they severely underestimate the things that could go wrong. One of, one of my, I, in fact, I have it as a screensaver on my on my computer. I've, I'm looking at it right now at my desk. I, I look at it all day long, every day. And the question is this, what don't I see? What don't I see? Because what I don't see is what costs me money. When, when I look back at my career, holy cow, the things that, where I've made mistakes, where I've lost money, I've lost a lot of money, um, because I didn't ever, I, you know, there was a time in my life where I got cocky, and and I, I may still be cocky, I'm trying to do less of that, but, <laughs> but you know, where, where, where I got cocky and I started thinking, you know, I'm kind of like Haley's Comet, a guy like me only comes around about once every 70 or 80 years ago or so, and you know, when you start thinking that way, you stop looking for the things that could go wrong. And I think most entrepreneurs have stopped looking for the things that could go wrong, which are the things they don't see. And so making sure that you've thought through and, and have enumerated, here are the risks, here are the things we're doing to mitigate or manage those risks, and then here's the upside reward to you, investor, if you decide to take this risk by being my partner. 
And, and you know, you can't have a deal where where you're offering somebody 2% of your company, but the risk is like 80% chance that the thing ain't going to work. That, you can't offer that. So those four, you know, if you want to move your deal to the top of the stack from an investor point of view, and that's what I am right now. I'm an investor. I don't raise money for my own deals anymore. I'm, I'm past that. I've done that to the point where I've got a pot of money, and if I want to, if I want to buy something, I buy it. Um, so I'm not in a money-raising mode. I'm in an investor mode, but I've been on both sides of this fence. If the people on this call will think about management, most important thing, that's something that a professional investor will never, ever allow to them. To, they won't break the rule. They, they have to have management. Number two, they have to have pent-up demand. The risk is simply too high without pent-up demand. It's great if you can show a barrier to entry on on what's going to keep people from becoming a me too to you, and then number four, the appropriate risk reward relationship. If you can show those four things, your your deal not only moves to the top of the stack, but you've also increased the odds of you ultimately being successful. The end game is not to raise the money. That's where everybody misses. The end game is not to raise the money. The end game is to build a successful, sustainable business. And too many people are, are successful at raising the money, but they never should have been because what they raised the money for has got no shot of being successful. Yeah. Keith, there's so much data in what you just said there, and we could spend hours and hours on every single one of those. And I know in your workshops you do spend that time there for people to truly understand it. But when when I boil it all down for people and going into raising capital, I think that last point you made is is a big one. They make the mistake of wanting to raise money rather than run a great business, um, and that's you know they see their out point as the raising of the capital. In running a great business, because the numbers aren't just important in getting to the point where you get cash. Running a great business, the numbers are vital. Um, you know, knowing the numbers, you know, I remember many years ago, we, we go through the simple statement of, you know, uh, accounting is the language of business. The numbers are the most important part. You've, you've met a lot of business owners. How many of them do you think actually can kind of, uh, what's the polite way of saying this? Uh, they actually know what they're talking about when it comes to their money. Fewer than 4%. And, and that's a very specific number, but but I want you to think about something. Ninety-six percent of all businesses fail within ten years. I think I think that there's a four percent club. The four percent club understands the numbers, and the reason the numbers are so vitally important is this: I, you know, if you're listening to this call, just get out your piece of paper and write down the word management, and then draw an arrow down, and underneath the arrow, write the word decisions, and then draw another arrow down, and underneath that arrow, write the word activities, and one last arrow, one more arrow down, and then write the word dollars. Management makes decisions. Decisions get converted into activities. Activities get converted into dollars. There's not, a, there's not a way, Brad, that you or I 
would fly with a pilot who couldn't read or understand the dials in the cockpit. It wouldn't happen. And yet most business owners are attempting to fly their business without an understanding of of the dials and levers in the cockpit. And if you don't understand the dials and the levers, what it's really saying is you don't understand what activities are happening. So the key is to make sure that you can understand the numbers so that you understand the activities so that you got a shot at changing the activities so you can have different numbers. The reason businesses run out of money, the reason they're off course, the reason they're at the wrong altitude, the reason they run into mountains, the reason they hit the ground is because nobody's got the dials that will show them, hey, you're headed the wrong direction. Hey, you only got you know, $5 worth of fuel left. Hey, you're, you know, you're flying too low to the earth. Um, you're off course. All of that is found in the numbers. And the problem is, obviously, that, that we rely on our accountants and our bookkeepers and our CPAs or CFAs or, or CFOs to tell us. And the problem is those people are, are not business people. Those people are, are data gatherers. They're not, they're not data analyzers. They're not data diagnostics. And so the key is to turn the numbers into useful information instead of a big pile of data. Most oh. people I know have had the experience of you know, going to their accountant or their bookkeeper and saying you know, they got their financial statements and saying, holy cow, how did this happen? And the accountant says, oh, I'll tell you how that happened. We debited this and credited that, and then we did an adjusting journal entry, and poof, there you go. And, and you, know, you walk out glazed because there's all of this jargon, and, and you don't have any more information than you had when you came in. I think I think the dial in the cockpit uh, for every single business owner is financial statements, and the problem is most people have never bothered or haven't learned or haven't had anybody to teach them. Now, what does all this mean, and how do I actually use this information to help me fly my business? Mm. Yeah, uh, and it's really simple, Keith. If you say to someone, would you go to your lawyer and say, hey, Mr. Attorney, you know, how's my business going because you've looked at the legals? Right. You know, they don't know your business, nor does your accountant know your business. They know accounting. They know law. They don't know your business. So. That's exactly right. I, li- I like the 4% thing. So I've been running Action Coach 16 years now, so I must be in that 4%. But see, I trained as an accountant before I went into business. So kind of guess I have a, an advantage there, I guess. Well, you do, you, you do have an advantage in anybody because, because accounting is the language of business. Uh, you know, that, that's, that's simply a fact. Uh, Warren Buffett has said this. Um, um, he has said, if you if you can't read the scoreboard, you don't know the score. And if you don't know the score, you can't tell the winners from the losers. And, and boy, you talk about a true statement. If you don't know the scoreboard, if you can't read the scoreboard, you don't know the score. And if you don't know the score, you can't tell the winners from the losers. Take a look. I mean, think about, Brad, you and I have attended an Australian football game before, you know, in in, um, in Brisbane, I think is where that was. And it was the first time I'd ever seen, you know, that sport. And, and of course, you're trying to explain it to me, and it's very different than any sport that we have in the United States. But at the end of the game, I knew who the winners were. 
I knew, I knew what the score was all the way along, and the reason is because I knew how to read the scoreboard. There was actually a scoreboard there for me to read. I mean, Brad, the number of people out there, and you've seen this just like I have, the number of business owners out there who don't even get a scoreboard. Now, I don't know how you expect to go out and, and be successful in business without a scoreboard and, and, and an ability to read it. And that's all financial statements are. One of the things that I that I do is that I help people translate the numbers back into activities so that now you got a shot at knowing what you need to change in order to produce different results. Uh, oh. I, 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 I you know, I think you're right. I think the four you are a member of the four percent club. I think I am too. I, and that doesn't mean that every single deal I've ever done has been successful just because I know how to read the numbers. But I guarantee you the deals that I do have that are successful, being able to read the scoreboard is a critical, critical component of that. Hmm. Now, but here's an interesting challenge on a case. Like I go and do an interview with Brian Tracy and we do all the, the sales stuff and it's the glory in the business, I guess. You know, when I talk with Brian or any of the Jeff, get him of the sales guys. When we talk about doing the numbers, there's no way in the world it's the glory end of the business. But, you know, sometimes boring is profitable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's always more exciting to go out and get a new customer than it is to take care of the ones you got. I mean, therein lies the problem. Most business owners and entrepreneurs are addicted to adrenaline. It's a lot of fun. It's very exciting to go out and attract new customers and build a marketing and a sales campaign and and all those kinds of things that are all and, and you got to do them. I mean, I'm not saying don't do them. I'm saying, but that's the fun part. The unfun part, or the part that could be boring, or the part that could be tedious. Is is things like financial statements. It's things like asking yourself the question, you know, how big would my business be if I still had every customer that had ever tried me? Um, it, it's things li- like asking the question, if I if if one hundred percent of my future growth was dependent upon repeat business and referrals, how would I be running my business? That stuff is the blocking and tackling stuff that actually is the stuff that that builds sustainable growth. There isn't a there isn't a person on this call, or there isn't a person who's being coached by somebody on this call who isn't getting new customers. That's not the biggest problem we got. It seems to me the biggest problem we got is we're not keeping the new customers that we, that try us. We we all have people that try us. I mean, the coaches on this call, for example, you've had customers that have tried you, and 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 you know what? They fired you. I mean, when when a customer when when a, when a client leaves, it's because they 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 say, you know what? I'm not getting the value that I that I'm paying for. What would have to happen for you to to deliver? the value so that every month when a client wrote their check, they went, holy crap, this is the best money I'm spending all month long. (laughs) I think that, you know, keeping customers 
and doing all that because there's a direct correlation between repeat business and profitability. Absolutely no, no way, no question about it. Here's the next topic I want us to look at, though, Keith, because it's a real important one for a lot of people. I meet a lot of business owners who are making a profit, but they die because they can't cash flow the profit. I'm, I meet those same people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's why they come to us, because they're struggling with that stuff. What, you know, what, what you, when people need to understand the difference and how it works, we've got to be able to help people say, okay, you've got to manage both cash flow and profit separately. How do you get them to manage the two things separately? It's a great question. Um, it takes me two days um, to teach that. Um, but but let me give you two minutes. How would we do let it? Me, yeah. Let me give you an overview. Profit is simply the amount that your sales exceed your expenses. That's all it is. And if your if your expenses exceed your sales, then you have a loss. A profit or a loss is a theory. It is not real. It is 100% theory. It's an important theory, but it is nevertheless a theory. It's the theory of do sales exceed expenses? If so, by how much? And we call that how much a profit. The goal of business is for sure to make a profit, but the ultimate goal of business is to convert that profit into cash. There's three types of cash. There's cash that's generated by the business. There's cash that's generated or used by uh, buying or selling assets. And there's cash that's generated or used from raising or borrowing money or paying it back. So there's three types of cash. And the goal of a business is to convert profits into the operating cash. So a lot of times a business at the end of the month or at the end of the year will show that they're cash positive, but the reason they're cash positive is because they went out and sold a vehicle or they went out and borrowed some money from the bank and they got some of that left over, and that's not sustainable. So the question then, the sequence of events and then the question, the sequence of events is for a business owner to convert assets into sales. That, that's the whole reason you have assets is to produce sales. I mean, there is no other reason to have an asset. I mean, could you have an asset that saved you some money? Of course. But the big issue with assets is let's, get, let's buy a certain amount in assets and get us to produce sales. The problem, first problem is most people pimp their assets. So they, they buy assets that aren't going to produce they spend more on their assets than what they need to in order to produce the sales. So instead of buying a $500 computer, they buy a $2,500 computer. They pimp their computer. The reality is a $2,500 computer isn't going to produce five times the amount of sales of a $500 computer. But people do it. So that's problem number one. So the sequence of events is assets are there to produce sales. Sales are there to produce profits. Profits are there to produce operating cash flow. The reason most business owners don't convert profits into operating cash flow is because there's a couple culprits. Number one is receivables. So sales includes the stuff that's been bought but not paid.
paid for yet by your customers. Those are receivables. So a lot of times businesses get caught short on, on operating cash because they haven't done a good job of collecting their receivables. So that's the message there. Collect your receivables. Don't let them stretch out to 60, 90, 120 days. You got somebody who isn't paying you, that's a direct hit to your profits. That you're a direct hit to your cash. You know, if your receivables go up, that's bad for cash. The second culprit in this thing is inventory. Now, or, or in some parts of the world, they call it stock. Um, your inventory, the, the, the amount of raw materials. So not every business has inventory. You know, a, a lawyer doesn't really have inventory, but, but Barnes & Noble does have inventory. So the amount that you are carrying in inventory is chewing up cash. So when your receivables go up or your inventory goes up, that's bad for operating cash. And then the third culprit, which is in there, is is payables and obviously you know most people don't have a problem with this you know most people you know wait to pay their bills as long as they can most business owners do that but your payables are somebody else's receivables and so of the three the the biggest problem that everybody has and and the reason that that say, that profits aren't getting converted into cash the biggest problem is usually receivables and inventory you know, mm-hmm. people just people do a bad job of managing those two balance sheet items, and yet they both have a material, massive impact on the ability of the company to convert profits into cash. And I realize all that was somewhat technical and somewhat fast, but 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 uh, let me just come back and and summarize and and agree with your initial point, Brad, which is. Yeah, you got you got to as a business owner, you got to make sure that the theory is good, that you have a, a healthy profit for the risk that you're taking. But but I'm going to challenge everybody listening to this to go next time you go out to eat, offer to give the waiter or the waitress a piece of your profits or a piece of your retained earnings as payment for that meal. It will not happen. They will not take a a piece of your profits or a piece of your retained earnings as payment because retained earnings and profit are not real. It's it's oh. a it's it's a theory, but there, you can't spend them. What's what's real is is cash. So visualize it this way, and then I'll 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 be quiet here, Brad. Visualize it this way: an income statement records the promise. A cash statement records the settlement. So transactions come in two parts, the promise and the settlement. And the promise is recorded on the income statement. That's very important to know what the promises were. But it's also important to know what the settlement is, what the fact is. So the income statement is a theory. The cash statement is a fact. You cannot spend your net income. And that one fact right there, is a life changer to most business owners. They look at their income statement, they go, holy cow, I got all this net income. Why, why am I having trouble paying my, my bills? Why am I having trouble making payroll? Why am I having trouble with the note payment to the bank? Well, the reason is you're doing a lousy job of converting theory into fact. Very nice. 
very simply put. That cash gap, as we call it, Keith, how many businesses do you see that actually measure that cash gap of, you know, when they have to buy something and pay for it to when they actually get paid for it from the people they sell it to? Four <laughs> percent. It's the same four percent. I'm telling you. 96% of the business owners that are out there, I've literally, I've literally done this. Brad, I've had, I've had Harvard MBAs, I've had Stanford, the London School of Economics, accounting professors, CPAs, all come and, and listen to me teach about this for two days, and every one of them has walked out going, holy cow, I didn't know that. They, they, they're great at the theory, but somehow we got to convert the theory to reality. And 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 I've done I've done the survey. It, it literally is four percent of the business owners that I've run into understand this issue of of the of the numbers, the dashboard. Even the accountants, the accountants know how to record it. And, and I'm great with accountants. Don't misunderstand me. I'm great. You got to have accountants. You got to have bookkeepers, but they're not business owners. They don't know how to convert all that data into useful information that will allow you to successfully fly your business, not run out of gas, not hit the mountain, not wind up in in Muskogee, Alabama, when you really want to go to San Diego, California. Yeah, if we if we look at all this though, and you know, you talk about you teach people a lot of stuff in business, and all of my coaches around the world they all work with clients, and yet, Keith, for some reason, people still think that business it's okay to learn by trial and error. Well, ninety six percent of them do. (laughs) (laughs) I just start to say there's four percent of them that don't. Trial and error is 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 a, a, an exceptionally expensive way to learn, uh, you know. And and all of us know that, I, you know. I, I will tell you, I've never tried crack cocaine. Um, I, I I know from the experience of others. I don't have to have the experience personally of crack cocaine to know that that's a dang bad idea. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's a life wrecker. Yeah, I don't. It have sounds to like the worst, but the idea sounds worse in Texan and in a Texan accent than it does in most other accents. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it's it, trial and error is is by far the single most expensive way to learn anything. You know, is it doable? Yes. But but you take here's here's my thought. Take a look at the true masters that that have lived, and and what you're going to find with every single one of them is that they did two things, and they this is without exception. This is a generalized principle true in all cases. Without exception, every single master had at one time was an apprentice. And they studied under and stood on someone else's shoulders. They studied under a, 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 another master. They studied under a coach. They studied under a, an advisor. They had somebody to watch them swing. And that's the key. If I have to go out and learn every single mistake that's out there via trial and error, the likelihood of me ever being successful at anything is zero. It's zero. It ain't going to happen. So I call this trial and error 
methodology of learning, I call it pin the tail on the donkey. And all of us have had that. We know that game from when we were teenagers, you know, or or young, you know, eight or ten years old. You know, you go to a birthday party and they put a donkey's butt up on the wall, and then they take some poor kid, they blindfold the kid, put the the donkey's tail with a thumbtack through it in the kid's hand, blindfold the kid, spin him around twenty times, and watch the kid stumble around trying to put the tail on the donkey's butt. That's that is the most common methodology that I've seen of people attempting to become successful with their business. And and the reality is it's a highly entertaining game to watch. But boy is it expensive. The yeah. the, the true masters uh, and and I, I mean this is true for me Brad, it's true for you. You had some people that you studied under, and, and it wasn't that you said, okay, well, I'm going to take everything that they told me, and I'm going to make that the gospel for me. You, you built on it. You changed it, but you studied under people. You learned from other people, and, and you said, good, let me take this and build on it so that I don't have to go make the mistakes myself. Masters are great at two things. Number one, they are learners. They are learners, and they've been a learner for a long, long time. They study with or study under somebody who can advise them. That's part one. Part two is they practice and correct, practice and correct, practice and correct. They're never satisfied. They're always looking for what can I do better. Where's the distinction that I can make that would allow me to do a better job? And that's the definition to me of of mastery. I think the trial and error method of business is is the only thing that I know that's more dangerous in business than that is believing that if you love your your idea or your product enough, it'll allow you to be successful. That one is the most common one that I yeah. see. That that oh man, I'm so passionate about my idea. I love my idea. My family, my dog. My best friend, everybody loves my idea. Therefore, it's a foregone conclusion that I'll be successful. And, and boy, you talk about a myth of, of cataclysmic proportions. It's, it's I, funny, I though, Keith, on that one, because you get so many of these teachers out there saying, you do what you love and the money will come in. That, and you gotta, you got to add a little bit to that. Do what, doing what you love means you put a lot of energy and effort into learning how to do it successfully. That's you it. mentioned Michael Dell, Bill Gates, and all these Steve Jobs, and, and people like myself in the 4% Club. We didn't start out as great business people. Dang, we learned it along the way. That's you it. Know, but we still had those fundamental great businesses in there. You know, and, that, and that, to me, is a, a really important part of, of what we do. Listen, a couple, of, yeah, a couple of last little points I want to get your, your thoughts and feedback on. One is that you know, we have all of these business owners that, that they start a business, they get into business, and they hit, I don't know if you'd call it a rut, but the business stagnates. And when sales stagnate, profits decline because costs are always rising. How do we get people to actually just notice that and, and really go, hang on, I can't just keep it steady. I've actually got to keep growing. Yeah, it, I, have, I have a thought, Brad, uh, and it's, I actually borrowed this thought from a guy that you may know. His name is Dan Sullivan. Uh-huh. That, 
that that who is a very very smart guy who I admire his work a lot. Uh, Dan Sullivan has coined a phrase called the ceiling of complexity, and the ceiling of complexity is basically when when you get to a certain point and the growth is no longer there and the thing begins to, as you said, stagnate. You begin bumping up against this ceiling, and you you go, I don't know, I, I I don't know what needs to happen to keep the thing moving forward. And and the, I'm going to now take my spin on on that and take it one step further. So I'm le- I'm just making a distinction that I'm leaving Dan now, so I don't attribute something to him that he goes, well, I don't believe that. I don't think he'd say this, but but. I'm going to take it one step further, and that is this: if what got you here won't get you there. And the, one of the biggest reasons that businesses stop growing is because the business owner has stopped growing. What, get, what got you to this level of success is not going to be what required, what's going to be required to get you to the next level of success, in fact. I'm going to take it one step further, and that is when you hit the ceiling of complexity, your experience has now become your worst enemy. I want you to think about that. It's a very interesting, it's a very interesting thought. What got you here to where you're stagnant is is the thing that that has gotten you to this point, but it probably has nothing to do with what's required to get you to the next level. When I look at my own growth, uh, when I look at successful people's growth, you know, there's a certain amount of skills and tools that are required to get you from, a, from a, an entrepreneurial seizure moment, an idea. There's a certain, th- certain things that are required to get you from that level to a niche where you have traction. And what's required at that first level of, of growth is huge amounts of flexibility and throwing stuff against the wall to see what will stick. And, man, you'll try anything. But once you're at the niche stage, continuing to throw things against the wall is not going to facilitate growth. The reason is because you're a one-man band at this point. You're a niche. You've, cr- you've successfully created effectively a job you know where where you got some income and you're doing all the work and you're doing the marketing you're doing the sales you're doing the bookkeeping you're doing everything is up to you that's what a niche is and i don't happen to be one of those people that poop all over you know having a job i look i think that's fine it's better than not having a job but but (laughs) especially today (laughs) yeah especially today but if you want to grow to the next level Continuing to throw things against the wall and experimenting is is not going to be the key. In fact, most businesses die right here at this at this stage of niche. They never bust through, and the reason they die is because Mama dies of exhaustion. I mean, view it like a imagine imagine having a baby and the baby being you know, 25 years old, and you're still in there, you know, waking up in the middle of the night, breastfeeding, changing diapers, the thing can't feed itself. Nobody wants to do that for 25 years. You can't. You'd wear out. I mean, mamas can do that for about a year, and then they're just 
plumb worn out. And the same thing happens with a business. If if you don't if you don't figure out what the next and the next step obviously is leverage. You know, once you get it to a niche, then you got to figure out how to leverage this thing. Well, f- leverage has nothing to do with with getting from the seizure moment to the niche level. And and in my world, I've developed a little a little concept that that there's you know six or seven different stages of growth, and at each one of those stages, so it's almost like a, a stair step ladder going up. At each one of those stages, there's a brand new set of skills and tools that are required that the business owner learn in order to bust through and get to the next level. And and stagnation happens at each one of those levels. And the reason most businesses don't bust through is because the owner, the, the management team, thinks Okay, this worked in the past. It's got to work in the future. So what we're going to do is we're going to do what we've always done a little bit harder, a little bit longer, a little bit more energy, a little bit more focus. If we if we're going to do it harder, longer, faster, and somehow that's going to allow us to bust through the ceiling of complexity. And it's not true. That does not allow you to bust through the ceiling and new set of skills and tools. Which is why I mean, you take a look at Tiger. Tiger, uh, Sandy and I were went to the Masters last year, and we saw Tiger, we were literally five feet away from him on the practice range, and Tiger's got, you know, four or five people that are around him when he's practicing, and and these are not, these are not bodyguards, these are coaches, uh, these are swing coaches, he's got a guy that is his head game guy, and he's got another guy, you know, what is he thinking about? He's got another guy that's watching his hands. He's another guy got another guy watching his his wrist and another guy watching his swing and his follow through. He's got all these people around him, literally around him, coaching him, and and they're they're helping him with distinctions. I mean, to me, Brad. I mean, one of the things that I admire uh, most about the work that you're doing and the people that are around you, the people that are. Are, are members of your organization, um, and the people who hire the members of your organization is that they've all come to the conclusion that I can't see myself swing. I can see the shot, but I can't see the swing that's producing the shot. And so Tiger, even as good as he is, is surrounded himself with people who can watch his mechanics, can watch him swing, that can give him some new ideas, some new thoughts. And we're out there watching Tiger with his swings. And, I mean, i got to tell you, I play golf, and his swing looks great to me. But after every one of his shots, his guys would all huddle around him, and they say, we couldn't hear everything, but they'd say, now, Tiger, what about this? What about that? And have you, th- have you can you do this? And, and then the next swing, Tiger has made those adjustments. Here's the key. The better you get, the finer the distinctions. So Tiger's distinctions and corrections right now are very small. But as good as he is, he's still got a guy, not one, but five around him, giving him distinctions. And I think the mistake that people make, Brad, is that you know they get a little bit of success, uh, they get some traction in the market, and suddenly they think they know enough. Boy, you know, I love what Michael Gerber says about this. Uh, I don't agree with everything Michael Gerber says, but I love what he says about this, and that is 
He says, you know, the problem with most entrepreneurs is not that they don't know enough about accounting or finance or marketing or sales. They don't. They don't know enough. The problem is they think they know enough. And so they spend all their time defending what they know instead of learning what they don't. Um, and, and to me, that, that, that's everything. Is I got, If somebody said to me, Keith, who are you? In one word, who are you? I would say my answer to that question would be I'm a learner. I'm a learner. That's what I'm about. I got to continue to make distinctions because if I don't, then I get the need to be right, and the need to be right is what causes me to go broke, and the need to be right is what makes me obsolete. There's a lot of people out there who who are in the process of being made obsolete, not because they get a bad idea, not because they get a bad business, but because they've stopped the growth that's required in order for them to continue to to grow. Yeah, you know, I heard somebody say one time the 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 only consistent the only cons- constant in business is change. That's the only constant. And most people are relying on their experience to get them to the next level instead of wait a second, what is there new that I need to learn? Keith, look, so many nuggets today. I'm sure people could listen to this over and over again and get three or four times the amount the second and third time. In fact, I hope you do if you're listening. Go back to the beginning and start again to make some better notes. But, look, Keith, your programs are brilliant. I, I can only suggest too hard for people to visit keystothevault.com. Uh, search Keith on Google, on Facebook, anywhere. Go find what he's doing. Attend his workshops. I know you do the workshops. How many times a year now you're doing the workshops, Keith? Only a few times nowadays. Oh, only a few times. Um, I'm I'm one of those rare people who teach who divides my time between businesses that we own and investments that we have and the teaching world. And the teaching world right now is getting less of my focus um, than it has in the past. So two or three times a year for each one of our each one of our courses. And the one that that you know most of your of your group uh, has attended um, is the one called the Four Day MBA, and and that yeah. one is the one where you can really get some traction on on financials and growing and and what it takes to to really turn your business from a from a hobby into into a business. Yeah. Well, I know Keith, it's pretty simple and and all of my listeners know this very very well. If I have to sell you on going to Keith's course, it's cuz I care more about their business than they do. And I learned that from a very wise man one time, Keith. I think it might have been you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's my friend. Thank you so much for your time today, and I'm sure everyone got a whole bunch of benefit out of it. Thank you, Brad. I appreciate you, and I appreciate your uh, your time, and, and I've loved doing this. Thank you for listening to Master Mentors. Join us next week as Brad Sugars continues to search for people we can learn from together. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play so you don't miss out on these great lessons. You can also find more great learnings from Brad himself at bradsugarsblog.com. See you next time.